With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash acquire. That's linkedin.com slash acquire. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us. This is a personal finance show on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein. Today is episode 374. It's titled, Time Diversification, Risk Parity Portfolios, and Settled Work. Yesterday, my friend Jay passed away of COVID. He was 96. I spoke to him about an hour before he passed. I felt impressed to call him. I hadn't realized he was sick. His daughter said he was strong and healthy just a couple of weeks ago. Such is COVID. I've only known Jay for about five years. We met because he lived next door to a house in Idaho Falls that LaPrell and I bought and moved into in 2017. He had lived in that house for almost 50 years. We became fast friends, often visiting together in the evenings or during the day. He would tell stories of his time serving in the Navy in Japan toward the end of World War II. He shared what it was like raising his family in the house where he still lived, his successful real estate career, how much he missed his wife, who passed away about 15 years earlier. We visited about what it was like to be in your 90s. He envied the fact that I had business projects to work on most days. That worried me. Jay had good friends, family, a roof over his head. He was still mobile. He could drive, walk. He was generally upbeat, looking forward to upcoming events like the annual 4th of July picnic. But I also sensed that he was bored. Boredom is one of my biggest fears. I once got fired from a temp job at a bank because the boredom was so insidious and I basically got myself fired. Jay didn't have what is known as settled work. This is a term I first introduced on the show in episode 276 back in November 2019. The term comes from a book titled A Pattern Language by Christopher Alexander, Sarah Ishikawa, and Murray Silverstein. It's a book about architecture, design, and philosophy that came out in the 70s. They define settled work as work which unites all the threads of a person's life into one activity. The activity becomes a complete and wholehearted extension of the person behind it. They point out that settled work doesn't come overnight. It's a gradual development as we develop more skills and realize what our interests are. It's work we do for its own sake because it's intrinsically rewarding. It may earn some money, but that's not the point to make money. Now, I've known different people over the years that have been very involved in settled work. Some write, others paint, others sew. Some do run businesses. An elderly woman in the neighborhood where I grew up ran the local hardware store. She must have been in her 80s. She still had a hand-cranked cash register. In episode 276, I mentioned Joe Weaver, who runs a store in central Phoenix called Stuff Antiques. He sells vintage lamps, chandeliers, vintage slot machines. He'd been in that building 24 years and in his previous building over 30 years. 
He's now 82. We saw him a few weeks ago. We bought some vintage pieces for our Tucson remodel, a chandelier for our dining room, a master bath mirror, and an outdoor light to hang above the front door. I asked Joe whether his business was still for sale, and he said no. People want to buy the building, but his wife says he can't sell because there's nowhere to put all his inventory. Another individual following settled work is billionaire Leon Cooperman. He's 78. He was featured in the Washington Post, an article that queried why billionaires exist and about income inequality. Cooperman is a former hedge fund manager. His settled work is investing and giving away money. They've set up a family foundation and promised to give away 90% of their wealth. He says, I don't want to say it's all play money at this point, but what else could I possibly spend it on? His assets are compounding faster than he can give them, give them away. He donated to more than 50 organizations last year. He said, other than my family, writing checks is the most meaningful thing I do. Settled work requires experimentation, exploration, patience, time, and money. Having sufficient assets that cover some or all of our living expenses. My friend Jay had never bought an individual stock or a stock mutual fund in his entire life. His only investments were real estate. He said he regretted not investing in other areas. Now, I don't know what his financial situation was. His children kept very close tabs on him and handled most of his financial affairs. They were incredibly attentive, eventually assisting Jay to move out of his house to live with his daughter in Utah. After he moved, living in our house just wasn't the same without Jay next door. It was shortly after that that we moved away from the area. Two major tasks that we focus on in life, among many things that we have to do, is, is to figure out what we're going to do with our life and how are we going to support ourselves, both now and in retirement. We have an entire lifetime of earnings, savings, and investing. I recently got an email from a listener that asked about a concept called life cycle investing. It is a concept developed by Ian Ayers and Barry Nailbuff, both professors at Yale. And it's based on the work by economist Paul Samuelson. They introduce a concept called time diversification. They write, the insight behind our prescription comes from the central lesson in finance, the value of diversification. Investors use mutual funds to diversify over stocks and over geographies. What is missing is diversification over time. This idea of time diversification is something that this listener hadn't heard about. Now, there's, there are two types of time diversification. The first is the traditional way of looking at it is that high returns of stocks or other more volatile asset classes will offset low returns in which by doing so, as Morningstar points out in a beginner investment class, the realized returns of the portfolio converge toward the average. They write, the longer you hold a stock investment, the lower your chances of losing money and the greater your chance of earning a return close to the long-term average. That's the idea. High returns, low returns, they merge, converge together to form returns that are close to the average return, lowering the chance or probability of losing money. If the longer the time horizon, your chances of losing money are lower, shouldn't we not invest all of our money in stocks? 
And maybe we should actually take out debt, a second mortgage, to invest in the stock market, to leverage up. Public pension plans are doing that. They issue pension obligation bonds, debt, that they then invest the proceeds in stocks and other more volatile assets to earn potentially a higher return, in many cases, to make up ground because their pensions are underfunded. That's the first type of time diversification. The second type is addressed in that article on on life cycle investing. The concept is to invest a consistent percentage of your lifetime savings. And by lifetime savings, we're talking about the present value or the value in today's dollars of your entire lifetime earnings. Ayers and Nailbuff write, The problem for most investors is they have too much invested late in their life and not enough early on. Young people invest only a fraction of their current savings, not their discounted lifetime savings. Their solution then, in order to invest a consistent percentage of your lifetime savings, is that young investors need to invest more than 100% in the stock market. To do so by borrowing money, investing on margin. Now, there are a number of ways to do that. You can borrow directly from your brokerage account. We've talked about investing in deep in the money call options, which have embedded leverage in them. But that's their concept of time diversification. Let's spend some time on both of those types of time diversification. First, the idea that stocks are less risky in the long term. I'll link to an article by Mark Fritzman in the Financial Analyst Journal, but he raises a thought experiment. And this is a question I often get from listeners and PLUS members. How do you invest a down payment for your house? Let's say you plan on buying a house in three months or in three years. How should those assets be invested? What about if you had these savings that you were going to use in 10 years? Would you invest them all in stocks if you knew you didn't need it for 10 years? Paul Samuelson, the economist, in a 1997 paper provided a potential answer to this question. He said to write down all 1,800 percentage point changes in monthly stock prices on a piece of paper. You put them in a hat, shake them up, and then pull out a return. Mark it down, put the paper back, pull out another return. Now, you probably can do this on a computer, but the idea is you have a long history of randomly selected returns. He writes, Is it true that in all these histories you always come out ahead in stocks rather than safe but less volatile securities? A series of returns randomly selected. Would investing in stocks for the long run always come out ahead? He writes, Definitely not. Most of the time, the buy and hold common stock investors do beat their more cautious neighbors as the time horizon becomes longer. It is also true that a longer time horizon brings bigger losses when an inevitable loss does occur. Canny risk averters should always keep in mind, in a rational, non-paranoid way, the pains they will feel in those probability-calculated bad outcome scenarios. I discuss this in my book, Money for the Rest of Us, 10 Questions to Master Successful Investing. In that book, I define the downside, which is a proxy for risk, as an investment's maximum potential loss and the personal financial harm caused by the loss, the wealth shortfall. 
It is true, and I'll also link to a paper by Zeev Bodhi titled Wishful Thinking About the Risk of Stocks in the Long Run. But what is true is that over time, the average compound return of a series of returns, it will converge to the average. There will be less dispersion. But the range of end of wealth outcomes, how many dollars we have, that actually becomes wider. There's more dispersion. The returns converge to the average, but the outcomes, the wealth outcomes, the impact of compounding, the amount of money we actually have is dispersed. It's much wider. Bodhi goes through a statistical example. The average volatility or standard deviation of a series of annual returns is, is derived by taking the standard deviation and dividing it by the number of years squared. We don't have to go into the math, but the idea is that over time, we're dividing the standard deviation by the number of years. That reduces the volatility. But when we're looking at the dispersion of wealth, it's calculated by taking the standard deviation multiplied by the square root of time. The more time there is, the longer the holding period, the greater the risk in terms of how much money we have at the end of the day. And that's what we care about. Not, not the average return, but what is our wealth outcome? We can think about this intuitively because the longer the time horizon, the more expensive it is to buy insurance, protection against market losses, puts, their options. They are more expensive the longer the time horizon. Bodhi goes through an example based on the Black-Scholes formula for calculating the price of an option. And this is theoretical, but in doing that analysis, he finds that the potential price of the put option would be around 8% of the assets if our time horizon was one year, but potentially 50% of the assets if the time horizon you were buying protection over 50 years. That's the math baked into option prices. So it is not true that owning stocks, more volatile assets, is less risky over the long term. The dollar impact of doing so, because of rare events that can leave us much poorer, is greater. Before we continue, let me pause and share some words from this week's sponsors. Sometimes it's just nice to sit back, relax, maybe even take a nap. That's not what you want your money to be doing. You want it to be working hard for you earning interest, generating returns. That's where the Betterment Automated Investing and Savings app can help. Betterment's technology gives you advanced tools that are built to help you maximize returns. They have diversified portfolios of low-cost ETFs that have been constructed by experts, high-yield cash accounts where your money can earn 11 times the national average, and automated investing technology like automated rebalancing. These tools can help you reach your savings and investing goals. Betterment is a fiduciary. That means it's their job to act in your best interest. They will never recommend an investment or give you guidance unless they believe it will help you reach your financial goals. So visit Betterment.com to get started. Learn more about the high-yield cash accounts at Betterment.com. Investing involves risk, performance not guaranteed, cash reserves offered through Betterment LLC and Betterment Securities. Betterment is not a bank. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. 
LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and for free. I know in our business, having the right candidates for the job is critical to keep our business running smoothly. Now, LinkedIn isn't just another job board. LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. It gives you access to professionals you can't find anywhere else. LinkedIn does all that while making the process easy and intuitive. Hiring is easy when you have that many quality candidates. So easy, in fact, that 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. LinkedIn is constantly finding ways to make the process easier. They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process even easier and quicker. So post your job for free at linkedin.com david. That's linkedin.com david to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. And looking back on our home purchase example, with that down payment, if we're going to buy the home in three months, three years, or 10 years, if we're worried about the downside, protecting the downside, then the assets should be invested conservatively in all three time periods because we could be harmed and not be able to buy the house that we want if our down payment money isn't there. Now, if we have a means to get the funds from another way, if we're waiting 10 years to buy the house, then that's different. But if we don't have the means to get the money in any other way, then we should invest in the same way, whether it's a short period or a long period, because we could be harmed if stock market losses mount. That's different from the time diversification of life cycle investing. Individuals that do that, that borrow money when they're young to invest in stocks in the margin, will more than likely end up with more money than if they didn't do that. But there will be those times where they end up much poorer. The reason they can do that, the authors point out, is while the investors face the risk of being wiped out because they're still young, they have time to rebuild their savings. They have human capital. They have many, many years of future income that they can use to reinvest in the stock market so they can afford to take more risk, even leveraged risk. What's uncertain is with pension plans that issue bonds and then leverage up and invest in their pension plan. In their case, they face some major sequence of return risk because major losses in the first few years of having borrowed that money can make it very difficult to recoup and compound the investment to end up ahead of where they would have been otherwise had they not borrowed. This is a concept called volatility drag and positive skewness that I introduced last year in episode 356 on rebalancing. Volatility drag is created when a volatile asset falls below its expected return. It has a poor outcome and it takes time to recoup that. Mathematically, because of volatility drag, there's positive skewness, which means that if we look at the average outcome, end of wealth outcome, of a highly volatile portfolio, that most of the end-of-wealth outcomes will be less than the average because there'll be some outcomes that do extremely well. Just like if we measure the total wealth of everyone in the U.S., the average wealth is going to be much higher than what the middle household has because of billionaires bring up the average. 
The same occurs for wealth outcomes when we invest in more volatile asset classes. And that's a good thing. It's attractive to people if we're able to overcome a negative wealth outcome. And that's where volatility can get dicey. If we're young, we can take higher volatility, even use leverage, take advantage of positive skewness. But when we're older, closer to retirement, those negative wealth outcomes can be seriously detrimental. And that's sort of the whole concept of safety first investing using some type of insurance product because we can guarantee those income sources so that we're not subject to the downsides of positive skewness and sequence of return risk. Now, that brings up another question from a member of Money for the Rest of Us Plus. He was relooking at risk parity portfolios. He was listening to a podcast that's completely dedicated to risk parity portfolios, risk parity radio. What risk parity is, it's an asset allocation approach in which the focus is to add assets in such a way that they all have very similar volatilities. Traditionally, it could be done by, and this is the way Ray Dalio developed it in his hedge fund, Bridgewater. Bonds have lower volatilities, and so if one can lever up bonds and get similar volatility as stocks, and you have a number of different asset classes, all with similar level of volatility, sometimes either leveraging them up or deleveraging them. And by doing so, it becomes a more balanced portfolio. And if these asset classes aren't perfectly correlated, there's diversification, then that potentially creates a more stable portfolio. A traditional asset allocation will have more in stocks and maybe it has 20 or 30% in bonds, but those bonds will be much less volatile. So most of the overall portfolio volatility is contributed by stocks. A risk parity portfolio tries to avoid that. Now, the simplest way to do that is something like the permanent portfolio that will invest 25% in stocks, 25% in longer-term bonds, which are are more volatile, 25% in gold, which can be volatile, but then 25% cash, which is not as volatile or really not volatile at all. And so there's different versions of this. The traditional version is everything has the same risk. Something like the permanent portfolio is more of a role-based approach. So it's divided evenly, but some of the assets are more risky, some are not. This member's question, he's thinking about using this approach for his retirement assets and wants to know if it's a reasonable approach. Now, you can go to an excellent website at PortfolioCharts.com, and they do all types of backtesting and modeling on the different versions of these risk parity or role-based portfolios. There's the golden butterfly, the all-weather portfolio, the permanent portfolio. Those three I actually model on the Money for the Rest of Us Plus website and include some sample ETFs. I model them because I want to look at the expected returns compared to more traditional portfolios. And I'm, I'm modeling the maximum drawdown. What's the potential loss? Now, historically, these role-based permanent portfolios, the worst case loss was 13 to 17%. And then that's fairly reasonable that that potential loss is similar to the conservative to moderate portfolios on the Money for the Rest of Us Plus website that have more of a traditional asset allocation. There is still the potential for volatility drag positive skewness for 
these role-based portfolios, but, but not necessarily more so than for more of a traditional approach, and perhaps less if, indeed, there's the diversification aspect in that one of the segments sells off while the other is doing well and reduces the potential volatility. Now, I mentioned that these risk parity portfolios, role-based portfolios, that the historical maximum drawdown has been 13 to 17%. But if, worst case scenario, all the different aspects fall at the same time, the potential maximum drawdown is 30 to 35% based on the historical maximum drawdowns of the different asset types. And that's where volatility drag positive skewness can be detrimental. If you happen to be newly retired, completely dependent on those financial assets and are in a role-based approach or want to use a role-based approach, invest 25% in gold, 25% in stocks, 25% in long-term bonds, for example, that could lead to a very negative outcome. And that's the risk we take. And that's when we have to try to mitigate that risk by having other sources of income, other guaranteed sources of income, perhaps employment. I think a role-based approach, risk parity approach, is a reasonable approach. It can be very formulaic using one of those portfolios. My approach is more of an ad hoc role-based approach. I recently restructured how I present my portfolio on Money for the Rest of Us Plus. And if you look at it, it generally has 10 to 15% in different buckets. There's about 10 to 15% in alternative currencies, gold and cryptocurrencies, about 15% in publicly traded stocks, 10 to 15% in traditional bonds. There's Roughly 15% in private capital strategies, venture capital, leverage buyouts. Another 10 to 15% in income strategies, preferred stocks, equity REITs, utilities. So it isn't a purely quantified risk parity approach with every single asset class having the same volatility because it's in the case of private capital, for example, that's just not, they're not marked to market daily. So you don't actually see that volatility. But I do think having different roles in your portfolio, different return drivers, can make sense. A traditional permanent portfolio approach, having 25% gold, that, that's a lot in gold. People need to be comfortable with that because of the volatility, particularly because there's no cash flow with gold. But if you're comfortable with that level of gold, and that's probably the most non-traditional allocation, then this is an intriguing approach. I model out the expected returns over the next decade for these role-based risk parity type portfolios, and they generally are 3 to 4% annualized. Hopefully, they'll do better than that. They definitely have done better in the last 5 to 10 years. But that's just a modeling for, for baseline for figuring out how much they potentially will grow. In conclusion, then, what I have learned in working with numerous investors professionally on the Money for the Rest of Us Plus website, is there isn't any one way to go about asset allocation. Just like there isn't any one way to figure out what your settled work is. It depends on your preferences, your experience, what your interests are. I am always amazed at how people have, have learned investing and the ways that they are comfortable doing it. And then they're introduced to other ways and they take small steps to experiment in those other way. We had a 
recent member that is investing in closed-end funds for the first time. Now, closed-end funds, let's say, let's say a fixed-income closed-end fund, is an interesting way to get levered exposure to the bond market because many closed-end fund bond funds have levered exposure. And I'll link to an investment guide on investing in closed-end funds. So there isn't any right way to do it. But what we definitely want is not to have flawed mental pictures of how financial markets work. And one of the biggest potential flaws is the idea that stocks have time diversification, that if we hold stocks long enough, that the risk of holding them is lower. That just isn't true. Most of the time, we'll do better by holding stocks for the long run. But there will be those times that we don't. And we need to make sure that we have a backup plan, a pension, an annuity, more human capital so that we can make up those losses, perhaps part-time work. Investing then is always a balance, recognizing, yes, if we take more risk, we can have higher end-of-period wealth. But investing doesn't get less risky the longer we stick at it because the range of potential outcomes is wider. That then is episode 374. Thanks for listening. I'd like to help you become a better investor. Certainly the free podcast helps with that. But have you subscribed to my email newsletter? It's where I share an essay on money investing in the economy each week to that list of thousands of email subscribers. I put a great deal of thought and time into that newsletter, and I would love you to be able to read it and learn from it. You can sign up for the Insider's Guide newsletter at moneyfortherestofus.com. Another way I would love to help you become a better investor is by you becoming a member of Money for the Rest of Us Plus. This is the premier investment education platform that's been operating for almost seven years now. Plus membership gives members the tools and resources they need to manage their investment portfolios. Not only can you tap into my more than two decades of investment experience, look at my portfolio trades, but my research is backed by top-tier institutional research partners such as Ned Davis Research, Capital Economics, MSCI, Refinitiv Data Stream. I curate the most important content and lessons to help you make better portfolio decisions. You'll also access a community of over 1,000 members to get their insights. Money for the Rest of Us Plus is a bargain compared to a college credit or subscribing to institutional research services that cost tens of thousands of dollars per year or even hiring a financial advisor. You can learn more at moneyfortherestofus.com. Everything I've shared with you in this episode has been for general education. I've not considered your specific risk situation. I've not provided investment advice. This is simply general education on money, investing in the economy. Have a great week.